Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome. My name is Aaron Moniz, and I'm here with my co-host, Blake Dean, and you are listening to New Voices of Mutuality Matters, hosted by CBE International. And friends, we are excited, excited today to host psychologist, author, and international speaker, Dr. Diane Langberg. And if you don't already know, Dr. Langberg is a psychologist globally recognized for her 49 years of clinical work with trauma victims. She's trained caregivers and clergy on six continents in responding to trauma and to the abuse of power. She's the director of Diane Langberg PhD in Associates and is clinical faculty at Biblical Theological Seminary. She's the author of Counsel for Pastors' Wives, Counseling Survivors of Sexual Abuse, On the Threshold of Hope, Opening the Door to Healing for Survivors of Sexual Abuse, and one of my personal favorites, Suffering in the Heart of God, How Trauma Destroys and Christ Restores. And then her newest book, which we'll talk about today, is Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. She speaks internationally on topics related to women, trauma, ministry, and the Christian life. Well, Dr. Langberg, thank you so much for being here with us today on the podcast. You're welcome. It's a privilege to do so. Wonderful. Well, our listeners know we always kick it off with our segment called Watch, Read, or Listen. So, Blake Dean, what are you watching, reading, or listening to? Yeah, I. so I'm currently just with my day job and kind of the things that I'm reading have been listening to more um, instrumental music. Oh, lovely. Um, because I need to focus a little bit more. Um, and I would highly recommend the score from uh, the movie, it came out a couple years ago based on a James Baldwin novel, novel If Beale Street Could Talk. Mm-hmm. It is a gorgeous score. Um, the composer, is he's fairly up and coming and um, I think has only been nominated for an Academy Award twice, which is not shabby. But his name is um, Nicholas Brittell, maybe is how you say it. It's really good. You should listen to it. Really beautiful. Sometimes when you listen to movie scores, it's like can be jarring and you're like, well, I don't really need to feel like I'm going into battle today when I'm reading this article. So... <laughs> It's really soothing, but also very engaging. I recommend it. What about you, Erin? Wonderful. Well, normally I bring down sort of the cultural bar when, when with my contributions <laughs> to this segment. But today, I have to say, I am reading um, a book that I've seen um, just talked about on my Twitter feed so often, which is A Church Called Tov yeah. by... Um, right. Uh, well, it's two authors. Scott McKnight is the only one I can remember at the moment, but we'll have to put the other author in the show notes when I actually remember her name. And it's his daughter, right? Yeah, it was beautifully written. And of course, it comes out of the experience with uh, the Willow Creek Church up in the Chicago area. And and I'm actually loving, this is pairing well with the conversation we're going to have today, but we'll get to that in a minute. In the meantime, um, Diane, what are you watching, reading, or listening to currently? Uh, I'm reading a book called How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith, um, which is on the New York Times uh, bestseller list. But it's a book about race, essentially, and it's extremely well done. He visits many sites in the U.S. that have sad stories to tell. I'm also reading The Great Physician by uh, G. Campbell Morgan, uh, who's one of my – I get teased for liking dead guys. And um, (laughs) – 
That's great. He's one of my favorite dead guys. But anyway, the book is takes each healing incident that uh, in the life of Christ and talks about it. And for a psychologist, it's a blessed, blessed book. So that's awesome. That's wonderful. I'm excited. I'm, I need to go read Clint Smith's book. I haven't heard about that yet. Yes. Uh, um, and it's worth so that she can get her dues. I just Googled a church called Tov is co-authored by Scott McKnight and Laura Baring. Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. Blake Dean. You're welcome. Well, Diane, I, the thing I loved when reading your book and was so struck by um, and feels um, ever prescient is that in your book, you're not condemning power, but you rather demonstrate how power is part of our humanity and our Christian faith. And I think that is um, wise and, um, and true um, in a moment where dismantling power um, is, even, even when it's rightfully the focus sometimes can seem to ignore the inherent existence of power. Um, can you begin by giving our listeners an overview of this assessment of power? Why is it important to orient ourselves this way before discussing abuse in the church? Well, I, as always, humans like to swing the pendulum. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. You know? Yeah. So we su- we support power that we shouldn't, and we condemn power when we should. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. No, um, yeah. But power can't be a bad thing because we worship a God of all power. That's where it came from, from him. And he created image bearers. So that means they would have power too if they look like him. The problem is not the fact that we have it, but uh, what we do with it and the fact that we now often use it for ourselves. We use it to exploit we use it to hide things, whereas he meant for us to use it to be like him and to produce fruit that looks like him. And we obviously lost our way very early on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's such an important place to start by recognizing that power is is a gift from the Lord. And and I think that that helps because there's there's so much talk about um, how we're to look at power, how we're to think about power and understand power. And I think there are certain ideologies that say we need to eradicate power as if it were something that we could just like a utopian disintegrate. delusion. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I love Which that. I, ironically, that is a power statement. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> if you eradicate something, you have used your power. You have used yeah. your power. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Spot on. So, so I love that you start that way, just sort of by setting us up. That's so foundational for how we then go about uh, understanding um, power in these institutions. But um, one of the things that I I know has kept coming up as I was reading through your book um, I would be having these conversations, and of course, right now, uh, as we're recording this, there's podcasts like uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars mm. Hill, which which your contributions have been wonderful. Um, if anyone has not listened to that, to go back and, and hear uh, Diane on that podcast. But um, there was another podcast that was talking about something similar happening at um, one of my alma maters, uh, Liberty University, mm. and and we we see these this cult of personality. We see these sort of figureheads that get a lot of this attention and and rightfully so but then there's this culture around them there's there's this uh, scaffolding yeah. where you have all of these people who have reinforced and and um, upheld and justified some of the terrible things that are done uh, with power. And you have a wonderfully enlightening chapter on deception where you make the case for deception being contained 
contagious. Mm. I found this so striking. Mm -hmm. And I know our listeners would love to hear about why we often fall prey to patterns of deception when abusers exist in our churches and institutions. And I would love for you to tell us more about why this happens and also maybe help us see how we can we can be ready mm. in case we find ourselves um, yeah. falling into a similar, a similar trap in our own institutions. Well, again, if we go back to our beginnings, uh, that's how we got ruined, <laughs> was falling prey to deception. And so uh, the enemy came in and deceived us, and he did it by using God's words slightly twisted which is what people do today. Um, but the whole deception thing starts in me, not out there. And oftentimes it can be that I deceive myself that something is okay because I love it or because it's done something good for me or people do this with systems, with churches, all kinds of things. Um, and so we talk ourselves into thinking it's okay when it's not okay. And we use it like a narcotic. It deadens us to being troubled. It deadens us to having to face up to whether or not we need to drag something to the light, which never feels like a safe thing to do. And so it's very easy then for it to be here and then outside of me and then in a whole system. Until the whole system uses it like a narcotic. We are God's people. We are doing his work and none of this can be true or if it is we should cover it up would you say and i'm i'm just spinning and thinking so you can be like no Blake that's not true would you say that maybe one of the central or one of the most prominent deceptions um especially when it comes to recognizing or dragging abuse to the light which is certainly a more complicated um situation than we could even discuss because it's contextual and it is based on power and dynamics of privilege. But would you say that one of the, I'm thinking about rise and fall of Mars Hill. I'm thinking about Liberty. I'm thinking about others um, that the means justify the end, that if the end is we're doing God's work, then the means to get there don't matter as much, or maybe um, I don't know. Do you have thoughts about that? Or are you just like, no, that's far off. (laughs) No, I, I think people often think that way uh, as a way of preserving what they love, what they feel familiar with, yeah. um, where they've made their lives, where they've made money, yeah. uh, where they've made fame, whatever. And, and so, yes, I think we do that all the time. Yeah. Mm. Yes. I, I think the picture of the idea of deception being contagious mm. The idea that 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 this this deception that you so beautifully point out is starts in us begins to to just spread unchecked in many ways through well-meaning people who who then just build walls to protect and insulate people who are just doing sometimes really horrible things um, and yet you have this uh, this culture and this group oftentimes that. That will do this, and I, I think that's what baffles me, and, and and baffles a lot of the people I talk to, because the the person doing the terrible things at the center of it all would not be able to survive in that without that insulation, without that culture mm-hmm. of deception, and um, and I think in in recognizing abuses of power, in 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 parallel with recognizing how to dismantle the cultures that insulate and support, um, seem to be just as much 
so just as important to to study and 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 audit in our institutions. But uh, your chapter on this, I think, is just is just fantastic, and I would I would recommend it to listeners. So. Well, I, I think it's also sometimes helpful for people to think about it on smaller scales. I mean, we do exactly the same thing uh, about child abuse. We, you know, a child is being abused in our family or a larger family. But if we tell, all of these other things are going to happen. And those other things are going to destroy the fact that we're a family. And so we don't tell. The same thing happens with domestic violence. You know, it, it happens in the smaller scales. And it happens all the way up into these massive organizations. Yeah. 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 I, I love that. I'd love to kind of take a slight left turn to talk about what you discuss in your book, which is um, the intersections of power and race and sex, particularly. Um, I think we all have found, I have found that leaders, um, especially maybe in ministry contexts are typically, are, somewhat unaware or um, hostile maybe to recognizing the power dynamics and to recognizing power dynamics and even more unaware or maybe more uncomfortable or hostile to how race and sex intersect um, with power dynamics. Um, Would you agree? And if not, we'd love to hear your observations. Um, If so, why do you think that that is the case? Well, yes, I certainly do agree. And I I think that those are two arenas where, based on deception and exploitation and uh, profit and all kinds of things, both in the world of racial issues and in terms of females, look back through the centuries and see the things that have been done, uh, and some of them in the name of God that have just been horrific. And uh, we use both individual and collective deception in order to make those things okay. And then, you you know, you look forward and so some things have changed and so we just want it to be quiet and be comfortable. We don't want it to still be stirred up. One of the things we're afraid of is examining ourselves. It, first of all, it's a scary prospect, I have to admit. And and uh, we aren't taught that much about it, I don't think. Um, and I, I don't think leaders are taught about that to examine themselves. We look at outcomes. We look at the way things are. We look at the way things ought to be according to us. And we make our decisions based on the externals. But we don't say... What's going on in my heart and mind in this area? And why is it I'm insisting on this particular point to the point of rage sometimes? Why am I doing that? What is it giving me? Um, You know, the light needs to be shown not just on systems, but on me. Mm, Yes, indeed. Mm. The the idea of self-examination and the fact that it starts with us, I think, is is just a valuable... um, just tangible way for us to begin to climb this exhausting sort of mountain uh, that is uh, power abuses and just just some of the po- things that poison these beautiful institutions that we're a part of. Um, just just something something so simple and reflective and and <laughs> simple. Well, <laughs> yes, S- simple in the sense that that sometimes it feels like is well. Sometimes it feels to me overwhelming 
the idea of thinking, how yeah. how are we going to fix this? How are we going to, oh, to yeah. tackle this? And so the fact that you keep kind of coming back to that, well, on this podcast, but also in your writing, yeah. um, just just gives a lot of hope uh, for for me. And one, I actually want to tie in one of your one of your older works because when I first read Suffering and the Heart of God, um, which is which a book, Aaron talks about a lot, like not <laughs> just in like prepping to speak with you, yes. but like. Yes. I've heard about this book and I sadly haven't read it yet, but yeah. I've only read Redeeming Power. But Erin has been talking about it for like at least three years. Yes. Since I've yes. known her. I do. I do love the book. And one of the things that caught me right at the beginning is early in the book, you talk about how if, if we're going to be caregivers for survivors of trauma, victims of trauma, we, we need an abiding theology of justice because mm. trauma victims have faced injustice. That's, that's many times mm-hmm. where the trauma comes from. And I'd never, I'd never seen anyone make those parallels so um, distinctly as you do in, in that chapter early on in the book. And I kept thinking back to it as I was reading your book about power, because I feel mm-hmm. like there was, there's sort of a launching point from that idea um, as we talk about power and power abuses. And so I just kind of wanted to dig into those parallels a little bit um, for our listeners, A, so that they'll go and read uh, Suffering in the Heart of God. But um, <laughs> can you talk about, uh, tell us about how scripture informs our understanding of justice and power and why that's important when we're talking about caring for people who have, who have gone through these traumatic situations? Well, it's very important to consider. I mean, number one, I think justice has often become this sort of buzzword that's cultural. But its origin is, I, the Lord, not one of lords, the Lord, love justice. And it seems to me the only right response to that is, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked, unjust way in me. And. I think that we have forgotten that that the whole concept of justice came from him. <laughs> and we we need to go back to that and to have him teach us, not just about what that means, but what we are inside and outside that doesn't look like him. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Very well said. I think I'm going to just take that sentence you just said, and I'm just going to like etch it into my brain. <laughs> That's that's a that's a beautiful um, and and you're right the the cultural the culture wars and the entanglements with these buzzwords have truly distracted or us. against them or yeah yes yeah. Um, have on both sides have I think distracted from the need to to go back and review like what does the Lord say what is how does the Lord inform us how does the Lord shape us and transform us in these ways and that none of these are are concepts that we can just dismiss or abandon, but have to be all considered. But through that, that lens, that, that, that eisegesis or that exegesis rather versus in, instead of our imposing onto scripture, but letting scripture um, transform us and speak to us and make us uncomfortable where we need to be yes. uncomfortable. Um, yes. Which and, is wherever we don't look like him. Yes. Yes. I, uh, I love that. That's, that's a beautiful picture. So thank you. Thank you for talking about that because, um, I've, I've been thinking on this a lot and I, and I want to encourage our listeners to, to maybe take some time to reflect on these, these ideas. Um, because we, 
those of us in these institutions, for those of us just as humans existing on this planet as Christ followers, these are some things we need to think deeply on. Yeah. I, I, as you were um, quoting the search me, O Lord, I thought of another, the psalmist in another place saying, heal me from my hidden faults. Um, yes. And I, and I, I, I was reading that actually a couple of days ago and I was so deeply convicted. It's funny. We're having this conversation right now, but so deeply convicted that even though I assent to the, to the fact that sin and de- my own deception and depravity are things that I um, know and I'm able to recognize and don't know. And I'm not able to recognize sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes I, I don't embody that knowledge, right? I don't, I don't, um, sit and practice. And I, I, I've been sitting in this conversation thinking about the monastic practice of examine, right. Is yes. like yes. the, the liturgical movement of that. We don't, we don't go into ourselves without, um, the communion of saints letting us know how, how it has been done previously. Um, and that we don't uh, stay there. So I, yeah, I've, I've been encouraged to retake up that practice that I think, um, I've let slip. I think, Something I'm interested in, again, to kind of take a bit of a left turn is a little bit more, um, a little bit more hands-on. I know some, most of our listeners are lay people, but some of them are um, ministers and practitioners in different ways. And I think the thing that connects all of them are that they're interested in justice in some aspect. But when, when you're interested or committed to justice, that means you have to look at injustice that I know, you know, Mm -hmm. well, and um, as as you know, in your work, having to sit and um, listen and hold other people's trauma and the brokenness of the world can be really um, daunting and without boundaries can be really um, difficult. I wonder if you could talk about either what you do or what you encourage others to do, um, practices or ways to maintain their own sense of boundaries and self um, so that we can Not to mention sanity. Not to mention sanity (laughs) and sleep. Um, But um, yeah, I know I struggle with that because I feel really, really deeply and I empathize really, really deeply. But um, wanting to maintain a boundary sense of self while also engaging empathetically, I think is something that's really challenging. And you have many, many years of experience to glean from. Yes. And um, number one, I I tried to quit twice, just for the record. (laughs) (laughs) And it was because it was like, you know, that's it. I can't take anymore. I can't yeah. take it. There's no room in me to take in anymore. Um, and and I, I, I think it's two things when I look back <clears throat> over what I've learned and what God has done in me and whatever. And one of them is that I'm just a human being and I need human things as part of restoration. So what I work with is really ugly. Not the people, but what's been done to them. I have to seek out beauty on purpose in concrete ways, which mostly I find in nature. My grandchildren qualify too. Yeah, (laughs) yes, indeed. But I have to be deliberate about it. I can't just say that's a good thing to do and never do it. So, and I work with chaos. You can't grow up abused and not have chaotic stuff going on and so I have to deliberately look for order which I find in things like Bach you know (laughs) the the man never wrote a disordered note in his life so 
I, I find those concrete human things that have to do with beauty are absolutely necessary. So that's one side. The other side is that very gently, but thoroughly and persistently, God takes me back to the cross. And that the work that I do is what he has called in his word, the fellowship of his sufferings. And the his part took me a while to get. When I enter into a life or I deal with whatever's roaming around in my head because of things I've heard and whatever, it's I'm, I'm literally being invited into the fellowship of his suffering, which means I'm with him. He does not abandon in those places. And he not only has not abandoned anybody who's experienced them, he doesn't abandon me when I go with them back into it. And so my understanding of the cross and my uh, love for it, for the one who the one who let himself be traumatized there, um, is also how I keep going. I would be walking away from him, both if I abandoned beauty and if I abandoned the cross and abandoned my work. They all go together. I, and it also strikes me as you're talking about that, I couldn't help but think that, and there is our hope, right? That his suffering did not end with his suffering, but ended in resurrection. The end yes. of the story, and, and as will all of ours one day, which is the hope yes. we cling to. Yes. Thank you for that. I I want to um, ask an even more particular question, um, which is, so it strikes me that not only do you sit in and um, dwell in the sufferings of Christ with, with his people in the particularities of people's stories, but you're also um, deliberately public, writing books, going to conferences, speaking. Um, and this is probably more of a selfish question, but um, as someone who does sit in the space where you're seeing the ugliness and then you go and maybe have to engage people that are not, um, maybe not all convinced about what you're saying or maybe it's a little there's a little bit of a push and pull how do you how do you love those people how do you how do you remain gentle and kind in those spaces well i first of all i didn't start writing because it was my idea <laughs> it was yeah. somebody else's idea and it's continued to be somebody else's idea but we it. are grateful <laughs> Well, and I'm glad too, you know, I, it, it, being able to put things into words that really, frankly, have felt unspeakable has been uh, uh, good for me. Um, but I, I think over time, uh, you know, there is pushback and between working with trauma and turning the light on uh, in the church. And I, I had a grandmother who used to say, um, if you turn the lights on, the rats will run. And so they do. <laughs> and and so, you know, there's feedback. And early on, there was a lot of negative feedback just because I was a female. Um, the, the verse that I keep going back to, which has kept me steady, I think, without uh, animosity, um, is what Jesus said a lot of times. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's not my job. It's not my job. And if I 
speak about him and justice and him and the cross and him and abuse and all of those things, and it's criticized or rejected or whatever, they're talking to him. So I, I leave it there most of the time. <laughs> yeah, wonderful advice. <laughs> yes, um, and, and, and in, in that lived experience over time. So we, we appreciate you sharing that. Um, as, we, as we start to draw to a close, we were hoping to end on a, a note of hope, which already you've already blessed us so much. I feel like we've been going to church for this podcast. It's been so wonderful just being reminded of things of the gospel. But, um, but your book ends by talking about how power is redeemed. And I know for a lot of our listeners, this is, this is contextual specifically to male-female disparities um, in, in the church and, and in society. But um, without giving away the book, because we want everyone to go buy it, and we'll have a, we'll have a link to it in the show notes, um, can you just speak to our listeners and give them uh, a little taste of what is the hope, what is the good news that we can anchor into in understanding how power is redeemed. Well, I, th- I think a large part of my personal experience has been has been sitting with traumatized, abused human beings all over the globe and watching them find a voice. That's power. Watching them make certain decisions about justice, even though they're terrified. When I sit with somebody who's been crushed and they choose the Christ-like way, they have chosen the way of power, not in a typical human mindset way. Um, And it's redemptive because the human that they were meant to be by God before they got, you know, trampled by sexual abuse or violence or trafficking or whatever it was, genocide, Uh, the healing that comes is then something that bears fruit that looks like him, which is remarkable if you think about that. I mean, how do you get marinated, especially as a child, how do you have, have a life where you have been marinated in evil and lies and trashing you and everything else, and you watch a person turn into the human God created them to be? They stand up. They don't hide. They speak truth. And they look like him. And power redeemed is in basically one soul at a time. So that that which is collective is not an abusive system or a system that hides and lies and protects evil and everything else. But the system is those individuals, one by one who look like him, which is what's, that's what the end goal is anyway. That's what it's yeah. going to be like at the end. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I get tastes of it now. Mm. Oh, that's a good word. That is such a good Maybe word. So. Um, thank you so much, Diane. And we want to um, let people know how they can uh, support your work and follow you. And um, I know you're on Twitter and we will, we'll, we'll, put your Twitter handle in and have everyone go follow you and you, 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 you give these great uh, nuggets. Uh, I really love your Twitter feed because it really, it just encourages me every day, very much like this uh, podcast experience has been. But um, is there, is there any, we love to give our guests an opportunity to do some shout outs at the end. If you have anything that uh, you're working on or want people to, to go and follow um, 
besides just your Twitter feed and, of course, your books? Well, the, my website is just my name. There's a lot of uh, talks, talks there that have been recorded and things on any of these issues um, and some blogs and things like that. So there, there's a way to it, just t- type my name and it'll come up. Um, so that would be another thing. Wonderful. Yes. Yeah. Your website is great. We would love, uh, we'll have to put that in the show notes as well. So um, people can just click on it and find all those resources. Um, So friends, listeners, thank you for being with us today. And we would love to encourage you to go follow Dr. Langberg on at Diane Langberg and and be sure to pick up Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church or any of her other books. (laughs) Um, And we have, we'll have links to all these in the show notes. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you can hear weekly from our co-hosts and other themes as we develop content on gender theology for the gospel empowerment of men and women. And be sure to follow CBE International on Facebook and Twitter. You should also go to their website at www.cbeinternational.org for even more content. Subscribe to their blog, magazine, and academic journal. Watch videos and listen to audio of past conferences and events. And you should go visit their bookstore where you can find a ton of talented authors and subjects that will enrich your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents and leadership and service to the gospel for all, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. We would like to thank Landon, our support tech, and team at CBE International that makes this podcast possible. I am Erin Monez with my co-host Blake Dean. We are Mutuality Matters. Thanks for listening. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.